0: Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American, born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the First Lebanon War in the 1980s and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. October 7 proved to Israel that we need to think outside the box. We need to abandon old concepts and literally click restart as to our understanding of our enemies. We need to re-ask ourselves, what are our enemies' goals? What are they willing to do to achieve these goals? What are their weaknesses? How do we deter them? How do we defeat them? Israel's strongest and most challenging enemy is actually not Hamas. It is by far the Hezbollah terror organization, located in Lebanon and backed by Iran. Who are they and what do they want? These questions cannot be answered without a deeper look into Lebanon, and so let's understand the context. Let's take a short tour of Lebanese events that created what to Israel, is a monster named Hezbollah. Those of us that remember, Beirut has been coined or was coined the Paris of the Middle East. It was a vibrant living city with cafes, frequented beaches, discos, etc. But, from April 1975 and until 1989, a civil war raged in Lebanon. The match that lit the fire... Occurred on April 13, 1975, when an Arab Lebanese Christian political leader named Pierre Jamael participated in a dedication ceremony of a new church in a suburb of Beirut. A few days earlier, it was agreed between the Lebanese security forces and representatives of the Palestinians that armed men would not appear in the suburb on the day of the church's inauguration. However, Several armed Palestinians arrived and opened fire. Now, why am I speaking about the Palestinians in Lebanon? Palestinians sought refuge in Lebanon already at the beginning of the Arab Israeli conflict. But most Palestinians, led by the PLO, moved to Lebanon after they were forcibly evicted from Jordan. And that's after a bloody war with the King of Jordan, King Hussein. The evicted Palestinians, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, made their way from Jordan Via Syria and into Lebanon. If this sounds confusing, then welcome to the Middle East. Back to the firefight. Several people, both Christian Lebanese and Palestinians, were injured and killed. A few hours later, a Palestinian bus passed by the church. It isn't totally clear if the bus carried armed Palestinians seeking revenge or just some Palestinian families. In any case, another firefight broke out, killing over a dozen people on the bus. These events lit the match that became a civil war in an already extremely diverse but also extremely divisive Lebanon. When I say diversity, divided, I'm referring to ethnic religious groups. Lebanon consists of a mosaic of minorities that are scattered in sectarian ethnic religious clusters in different regions. Groups like Christians from different denominations, like Maronite Christians, Greek Orthodox, Catholics, and others. There are also Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, Druze, Alawi, Charkesi, and more. Actually, in Lebanon, there's about 18 groups in total. The Civil War raged for 14 years, from early 1975 and until the end of 1989. It finally ended with the signing of the Taif Agreement brokered by the Saudis. The Lebanese government confirmed that in that war, the Civil War, about 150,000 people were killed 200,000 were wounded, 175,000 were missing and declared dead, almost 800,000 fled their homes, and about 1 million people emigrated from Lebanon. The civil war resulted in the social, cultural, and economic collapse of Lebanon. Although the war was over, the groups continued, until this very day, to struggle for power. In 1982, in the midst of the Lebanese Civil War, Israel invaded Lebanon. And I can attest to it since I was a young soldier at the time and spent most of my three-year mandatory service inside Lebanon. Why did Israel invade Lebanon? The Israeli invasion's purpose was to eliminate Palestinian terrorists based in southern Lebanon. The Palestinian Liberation Organization Terrorists based in southern Lebanon launched Russian-made Katyusha rockets into northern Israel on a constant basis. PLO terrorists also infiltrated Israel and wreaked havoc On the Israeli civilian population, the invading Israeli Defense Forces overwhelmed the Palestinians and Lebanese fighters in the south and made their way to Beirut seeking to expel the Palestinian Liberation Organization leadership. Now this gets really messy and confusing. Since I just want you to understand the context, I don't want to talk too much about the details of that war, perhaps in a different episode. I'll just say that Israel attempted to achieve four main goals in our invasion of Lebanon. One, Bring quiet and calm to our northern border. The second, get rid of the PLO hold over Lebanon. Third, establish an ally in Lebanon, mainly Christian Lebanese. And four, get rid of the massive Syrian forces stationed in Lebanon. Of these four goals, Israel did succeed in exiling the PLO leadership and bringing quiet to our northern border. But that was short-lived. Israel named the invasion Operation Peace for the Galilee, but it is better known as the First Lebanon War. This background, this context, was the impetus for the rise of Hezbollah. Hezbollah rises to power as a result of both the Lebanese Civil War and Israel's invasion. You see, when the Palestinian Liberation Organization was kicked out, the vacuum of power was filled by the Shia movement. Hezbollah is, of course, Shia. Hezbollah was officially established in 1982 with the help of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a counterweight to a different movement named Amal, which was also Shia in Lebanon. Until the rise of Hezbollah, Amal was the most prominent movement in the Shiite public in Lebanon. Hezbollah functions as both an Islamist terrorist organization and political party. The name Hezbollah actually means the party of God in Arabic. The two major stated goals of the Hezbollah are the destruction of the State of Israel and the establishment of an Islamic rule in Lebanon and in the Middle East. They established an extensive military infrastructure in southern Lebanon and have a large inventory of rockets and missiles designed to attack Israel. The leader of Hezbollah since 1992 is Hassan Nasrallah. I'll get back to him in a few minutes. As soon as Hezbollah was established, they went to work. The first targets were Israeli and other foreign forces stationed in Lebanon, namely the Americans and the French. On November 11th, 1982, shortly after 7 a.m., a powerful explosion rocked the Israeli Defense Forces headquarters building in the city of Tsur, which is on the coastline, the southern coastline of Lebanon. The seven-story building, the headquarters, was instantly reduced to rubble. It was a sense of horror described the man present at the scene. Everything collapsed like a house of cards. 76 Israeli soldiers were killed in the collapse, along with 15 other Lebanese detainees who were in the building. Then, on April 18, 1983, a suicide bomber driving a van devastated the U.S. Embassy in Beirut, killing 63 people, including 17 Americans. On October 23rd of the same year, a terrorist plowed his bomb-laden truck through three guard posts, a barbed wire fence, and into the lobby of the Marine Corps headquarters in Beirut. The terrorist donated a massive bomb killing 241 Marines, Navy, and Army personnel. That same morning, 58 French soldiers were killed in their barracks two miles away in a separate suicide terror attack. The U.S. under Ronald Reagan got the message and started to reduce their forces and finally got out of Lebanon altogether. On February 26, 1984, the main force of Marines left Lebanon, leaving just a small contingent to guard the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. The French also took off. The Israeli Defense Forces stayed, but retreated to a security zone in southern Lebanon in order to protect the Israeli communities just across the border in Israel. It is important to comprehend that Hezbollah attacked on behalf of itself, but mainly on behalf of Iran as well. Israel and the U.S. were, and still are, the main enemy of Iran. Getting rid of the Americans and the French coincided perfectly with the ideology that one day the Middle East will be under Shia, Muslim control, led by Iran and their proxies, the strongest of which is Hezbollah. Hezbollah now set its sight on targeting Israeli forces. During the 18 years in which the IDF troops were stationed in Lebanon, over 4,000 attacks were carried out by Hezbollah on the Israeli Defense Forces. I was witness to one of them. In 1984, we were making our way, my unit was making their way into Lebanon after a short stay in Israel. We drove in two small jeeps, military jeeps. A few minutes after entering Lebanon, we heard a tremendous explosion behind us. It was a deafening explosion. It was clear something major had happened. We turned around to see if you could help. When we arrived at the scene, less than a mile away, we saw it. A suicide Hezbollah car bomb drove directly into an Israeli Defense Forces truck carrying soldiers from the Armament Corps. 14 soldiers were killed. The sight was pretty horrific. I'll spare you the details. I'll just say that not much was left of anyone on that truck. On February 16th, 1992, Israel reacted to the Hezbollah terror campaign by killing Hezbollah Secretary General Abbas el musawi The Israeli Defense Forces helicopters launched missiles at his convoy in southern Lebanon. As a result of the attack, Musawi was killed along with six other people, including his wife and his son. About a month after his assassination, Hezbollah avenged his death by carrying out an attack on the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, Argentina. 29 people were killed as a result of the embassy explosion. It was then that Hassan Nasrallah was elected as Musavi's successor and has since served as Hezbollah's leader. I often speak to a friend of mine named Erez. Erez loves history and politics and has often said, one person can change the course of history. I couldn't agree more. It is enough to see how history was made not too long ago by people like Hitler or Stalin, or contrary to them, Churchill and Roosevelt. The one person that shaped Hezbollah in his image and served as the biggest adversary of Israel is without a doubt a man named Hassan Nasrallah. In this sense, killing the former leader Abbas al-Musawi was a deep Israeli miscalculation. It seems that the rule of asking who replaced the killed leader before a targeted killing wasn't looked at by Israel in this case. So who is Hassan Nasrallah? He was born in 1960, the eldest of nine kids, from a very poor family in southern Lebanon. The family moved to Beirut, where Hassan was young. His father sold fruit and vegetables. Hassan Asrallah helped his father in selling the fruits and the vegetables. At 16 years of age, he leaves his family and goes to Iraq for religious studies. Hassan Asrala studied at Najaf, Iraq, which is an important holy site for the Shia. The Shia, who were always overshadowed by Sunni Muslims, felt that they are part of a persecuted minority. In Iraq, Nasrallah was actually considered too radical and was sent back to Lebanon. Between 1987 and 1990, for those three, four years, Nasrallah visited a little further than Iraq. He actually visited Iran many times. This is where he was sold on the idea of a Shia-Iranian-led Middle East. Nasrallah sees himself as first and foremost Shia and only second Lebanese. After the killing of Abbas al-Musawi, once again the leader, the former leader of Hezbollah, Nasrallah became the leader at the young age of 32. Nasrallah is a very talented leader, unfortunately for us. He turned Hezbollah into an army. He becomes not only the leader of the Shia in Lebanon, but also the leader of all of Lebanon. Nowadays, Nasrallah is also considered a regional Middle East leader. In 1997, Hadi Nasrallah, which is Hassan Nasrallah's son, was killed by the Israeli Defense Forces during a firefight in Lebanon. This was obviously a blow to the family, but it also plays Nasrallah not only as a leader, but a role model that sacrificed his own son for the greater ideology. Hezbollah achieved a level of stars, stardom, in the eyes of the Arab Middle East as well as many other countries in the world. When Israel withdrew totally from Lebanon, In the year 2000, in 1999, newly elected Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak announced a rather peculiar announcement. What he said was this, by July 1st, 2000, the IDF will leave Lebanon with or without an agreement. This is an odd announcement since it left Israel with no chance of an agreement. Why would Hezbollah need to give anything in return if Israel is pulling out no matter what? I think Hezbollah was shocked. They actually didn't believe it until they saw it. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, also didn't really understand this. They were baffled since the security of Israel communities along the Lebanese border would be totally exposed. To Barak, the Israeli Prime Minister, it was a strategic idea to retreat to the international line. In his eyes, we would gain legitimacy, not from Lebanon or Syria, but from important countries in the free world. Barak tried to convince Israelis that world legitimacy is what will ultimately bring about a reality of security on the Lebanese border. On a side note, Barak was an amazing soldier, the most decorated soldier in Israel. He culminated his service as the IDF chief of staff. But as a politician, declaring a unilateral withdrawal without any agreement with the Lebanese or the Syrians was a total rookie move. Of course, I'm saying this in hindsight, but even then, in 2000, Many in Israel were confused as to this unilateral, non-agreement tactic. It was handing Hezbollah a victory. A victory that until then, no Arab army or otherwise were able to achieve. The idea that world legitimacy would bring about security is almost as if Barak didn't know the Middle East. Perhaps Barak thought that the small army supported by Israel, called the South Lebanese Army, which stayed put in Lebanon, would be the buffer to the Israeli border. But... As soon as the Israeli Defense Forces retreated, massive demonstrations began on the Lebanese side and the South Lebanese army basically dispersed. Many of the soldiers sought refuge in Israel. The Arab world understood Israel's withdrawal was due to the Hezbollah resistance and they weren't wrong. Hezbollah was able to kill between 20 to 25 Israeli soldiers per year. To Israelis, this was painful and disastrous. Many Israelis voiced the opinion that we were stuck in the Lebanese mud. Our own Vietnam. Israeli society wanted out of Lebanon. On a side note, when you think about 20 to 25 soldiers a year, compared to what is going on now, obviously that doesn't seem like a large number. I can't forget, however, as soon as the retreat was over, the scene of Israeli women standing on the border, facing the Lebanese, standing on the other side. The Israeli women waved to them and naively shouted peace slogans. We want peace with you, they shouted. The Lebanese yelled back obscenities. We hate you and we always will. Only three months after Israel's withdrawal from Lebanon, on October 7, 2000, Hezbollah forces penetrated into Israel territory in the Mount Dov area and kidnapped three soldiers, Adi Avitan, Beni Avraham, and Omar Sued. The three were killed in the kidnapping. Hezbollah claimed that Israel holds Lebanese prisoners and that the soldiers would be returned in an exchange. The entire concept of security and that Hezbollah no longer has a cause since the Israel forces withdrew from Lebanon collapsed at once. Hezbollah actions weren't really about an exchange. Their action was based on three strategic reasons. First, they claimed that Israel didn't fully withdraw from Lebanon. They claimed an area called the Sheba Farms was still Lebanon and Israel was holding it. Everyone, even the United Nations, knew this was not the case but understood that Hezbollah needed a reason to continue its struggle with Israel. Second, at the time, Israel had its hands full and foil in the Second Palestinian Intifada. And third was the Hezbollah belief that Israeli society is weak. Just after the Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon, Hassan Asrallah gave a speech comparing Israel to a spider web. He said, among other things, that Israel has nuclear weapons and the strongest air force in the region, but really it is weaker than a spider's web. A theory known as the cobweb theory was built around these things. According to this theory, while Israel is strong military power, Israeli society is a spoiled, affluent society that is tired of wars and that the endurance threshold of its citizens is very low. The theory holds that even though the IDF is strong, the citizens of Israel, who are sensitive to the loss of human life, are no longer willing to fight and sacrifice their lives to protect their national interests. With this idea, Nasrallah's appetite grew. He really believed that military attrition would help and destroy Israel. In 2006, Nasrallah continued his policy of attrition. Like in 2000, Hezbollah attacked an IDF patrol along the border between Israel and Lebanon, killing five soldiers and kidnapping the bodies of two of the five. The two soldiers kidnapped their bodies were the soldiers by the name of Regev and Goldwasser. The Israeli government, led by Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, instructed the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, to attack Hezbollah targets in Lebanon as well as to Lebanese infrastructure targets. This was due to Israeli policy that Lebanon is the sovereign power responsible for any attack coming from Lebanon. Right after the kidnapping, Hassan Asrallah gave a speech in which he stated that the soldiers abducted will be returned through indirect negotiations for a prisoner exchange, including the release of Palestinian prisoners. Prime Minister Errol al rejected the proposal, and Israel was at war with Hezbollah. The war lasted more than a month. During this time, Israel was exposed to rocket barrages, some of which reached the center of the country, causing casualty and damage. During the fighting, various deficiencies were discovered in the operation of the Israel Defense Forces and in the performance of senior commanders. The Israel Defense Forces was unable to achieve a clear defeat of Hezbollah and was unable to completely prevent the launch of missiles into the Israeli territory. Mind you, this is before Iron Dome was invented. As a matter of fact, Iron Dome came about largely due to this war. Having said that, Hezbollah received a severe blow. It lost all its strongholds on the border with Israel, suffered heavy losses, and a significant part of the combat equipment was destroyed. The Dakhya neighborhood in Beirut, home of the Hezbollah leaders and the Shia in Lebanon, was destroyed almost in totality. Israel attempted to kill Nasrallah himself intelligence information was received that Nasrallah was in Beirut, in a specific building, actually in the basement of the building. Two large bombs blew up the building, including the entire underground of the building. Nasrallah had left a few minutes earlier, and unfortunately he wasn't hurt. In his speech on August 28th, Hassan Nasrallah admitted that if he had known that Israel would react with such force to the kidnapping, he would not have ordered it to be carried out. At the end of the war, a new situation arose on the border of Lebanon. Hezbollah was removed, the Lebanese army as well as the international force were deployed in southern Lebanon. The United Nations passed a resolution called Resolution Number no. 1701. The resolution stated the following, The Security Council calls for Israel and Lebanon to support a permanent ceasefire and a long-term solution based on the following principles and elements. The establishment between the Blue Line and the Litani River of an area free of any armed personnel assets and weapons other than those of the government of Lebanon. Hezbollah stopped their strategy of attrition, but started to build a missile force that equals any large modern army of nowadays. As of 2024, Hezbollah possibly has 150,000 rockets and missiles. Hezbollah also chipped away at the resolution number 1701 and returned to control southern Lebanon. It is 2024 and Hezbollah is de facto controlling Lebanon. But Lebanon is in a deep crisis. In recent years, Lebanon has been on a fast track to economic collapse, which has led the country to bankruptcy and greatly deteriorated the living conditions of the residents, most of whom suffer from hunger and a severe lack of electricity, water, and basic services like education, health, and personal security. The crisis is rooted in the incompetence and ongoing corruption of the Lebanese government. This is the most serious economic crisis the Lebanon has known in its history. And according to experts, the economic financial crisis in Lebanon is one of the most serious known in the international arena since the middle of the 18th century. Add to the incompetence and corruption, a great deal of negligence. On an early summer evening in 2020, a warehouse at the Beirut port caught fire. The fire spread quickly to a hangar in the port, where ammonium nitrate was stored. A massive explosion occurred that created a huge shockwave that was felt for over 15 miles. The explosion rocked Beirut and the surroundings with a force of about a kiloton of TNT. Hundreds died and thousands were injured. The explosion symbolized everything that was wrong in Lebanon. The ongoing crisis is severe and Lebanon is basically bankrupt. But Hezbollah continues to enjoy independent sources of income from Iran, drug sales from the Bekaa Valley, donations, and other criminal sources. Known in Lebanon can challenge Hezbollah. Understand that Hezbollah is able to pay hundreds of dollars to their fighters, whereas the Lebanon army pays around $50 per month per soldier. As I already pointed out, Hezbollah is de facto the ruler in Lebanon. And so now we must ask, what are the weaknesses of Hezbollah? So from around 2011 and until about 2020, Lebanon's next-door neighbor, Syria, fought a bitter civil war. The president of Syria, Assad, was an ally of Iran and Hezbollah. Therefore, Hezbollah entered the war to help Assad. Many Hezbollah fighters were killed. They suffered greatly from this war. But they were also able to set up on the Syrian side of the Israeli border. A second weakness involves the Lebanese public. So leaders such as Samir Jaja has become intensely critical of Hezbollah. Now realize, Hezbollah once again is a leader of the Shia in Lebanon. But the Shia make up 30% of Lebanon and the rest of the 70% are spread among the 17 other groups that exist in Lebanon. A third, as mentioned, Lebanon is bankrupt. Many Lebanese blame Hezbollah. Recently, natural gas was discovered off the coast of Lebanon. That gas is at risk if Hezbollah continues to harass Israel and you know what that means. Another threat is the fact that the United States and the West consider Hezbollah to be a terror organization. The United States, as we know, Recently, moved aircraft carriers to the border on the Mediterranean Sea in order to deter Hezbollah. And again, the resolution number 1701, that is a resolution that passed with our nations, in which Hezbollah needs to be behind the Litani River, miles away from the Israeli border, is a weakness of Hezbollah which Israel says must take place. Now, Hezbollah also realized that Israel has kind of, as we call it, changed disks since October 7th. Hence, Israel may preempt with a military force into Lebanon, which Hezbollah does not really want. Nasrallah himself, the leader of Hezbollah, also is afraid of an assassination. Israel has assassinated many Hezbollah and others, such as Imad Murnia, that was number two in Hezbollah a few years ago, and hence Nasrallah is also scared of an assassination. Those are basically the weaknesses of Hezbollah. Let me end by telling you what happened in mid-January, when Amos Hochstein the American diplomat that is a liaison to Lebanon visited Beirut. According to El Akhbar, the newspaper affiliated with Hezbollah, Hochstein told them that they must evacuate at least seven kilometers north of the border with Israel. That area would be administered by the Lebanese army. According to the newspaper, Hochstein threatened that if they did not agree, Israel would go to war that would start in the south of the country but could also develop into more northern parts of it. Previously, Hawkstein's message was always that the U.S. was opposed to an Israeli attack. Hezbollah saw this as somewhat of an insurance policy. This time, Hoxton painted a different picture, according to which Israel will not hesitate to attack on the ground, in the air, and at sea, despite the opposition of the United States. If indeed these are the words Amos Hochstein used, then it is a clear signal to Hezbollah that the U.S. will not stand in Israel's way. And finally, and these are probably the most important words, everyone, and I emphasize everyone, is watching Gaza. Everyone is looking at what will be the outcome of the Gaza war. The outcome will dictate Israel's security in the near and distant future. Israel must defeat Hamas in a total way as the entire Middle East watches on. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all the podcast media sources such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the support us button.